Trust is eroding in the United States of America and to a certain extent around the world. We have to create whole new mechanisms in terms of communicating what's going on, hearing where people are coming from. If you don't feel like you're being treated justly, reciprocally, you can't trust other people. If you can't trust them, you can't cooperate. It all comes down to trust. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Goldie, I cannot wait to talk to our guest today, uh, our friend Margaret Levy, who has been um, both so influential and so helpful in our work on, uh, you know, reimagining economics. And she, you know, she runs the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences at Stanford and hosted Eric Beinacher and I and you there right as COVID was beginning to <laughs> sort of analyze the book that Eric and I are continuing to try to write. But before we get to that conversation, we've got a couple of housekeeping things, including right. gasp. And by the <laughs> way, my kids are thrilled about this. I am actually on TikTok now as at real Nick Hanauer. And it, I must say it has been super fun to begin to put some videos on economics up on TikTok. It's not fun to make the videos, but it's super fun to see the reactions from people on TikTok. It's, um, it's challenging and interesting and fun. Yeah, I, I, I'm not on TikTok, Nick, because yeah. uh, uh, I'm, I'm an old fuddy-duddy who doesn't want to put that Chinese spyware on my phone, <laughs> but I hear you're a natural at it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody tells me. Okay. Yeah, other, yeah. Uh, uh, other uh, housekeeping. I've mentioned this before, Civic Ventures now has a weekly newsletter the pitch. I'm sure. I'm sure you're uh, you're reading it every week, Nick. Yep. Uh, it's got the latest economic data, news, and analysis. And as always, there is a link to sign up and receive the pitch. Just go to our show notes. And uh, also, uh, there's this really cool conference coming up. It's called EconCon. Our friends at the Groundwork Collaborative, along with a bunch of other excellent organizations, are putting on a virtual gathering that is absolutely free. Free, that, that, that should be attractive to uh, homo economicus, at least. Yeah. <laughs> and it's open to the public. It should be super interesting, convening experts and organizers and advocates from across the country to examine what it will take to build an economy that works for all of us. It's, it's October 6th and seventh and everyone listening should go uh we're going we'll we'll be there we'll have a virtual booth that's right um and you can go to econcon.com to reserve <laughs> your spot and if that's too hard to figure out just uh, again there's a link in our show notes absolutely so let's get back to the subject at hand right uh and our conversation with margaret about trust in human societies. And, and to be clear, you know, hu humanity is a successful species because we're fundamentally collaborative and cooperative. 
and we've talked about this a lot, it's one of the secrets to our success is our ability to cooperate at scale. No other species does that, this ability to cooperate with complete strangers sometimes. That's right. At scale, well, that's how we've dominated the planet. That's right. But obviously, trust is eroding in the United States of America and to a certain extent around the world. And we're watching this unfold in real time. Uh, so it'll be super interesting to talk to somebody who's devoted a career to studying trust and cooperation uh, and trying to trying to tease apart the dynamics of what it takes to get people to be more cooperative, even if they might not want to be initially and what kind of institutional arrangements and institutions it takes to get that done. So I'm super excited to talk to our friend, Margaret Levy. I am Margaret Levy, professor of political science at Stanford, and more importantly, director of the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences. And I'm the author of several books, but uh, two of relevance now are In the Interest of Others with John Alquist and A Moral Political Economy with Federica Caragatti. And, and Margaret, it's so fun to have you here as a fellow traveler, and I'm about a quarter of the way through your latest book, uh, <laughs> which you were so kind to give me. And, but, you know, your interest in cooperation and trust and our, you know, our view that it is effectively the, the source of prosperity in human societies uh, creates a super cool convergence. So what I'd like to know is how did you come to focus on trust and cooperation as, you know, the, the focus of your research? Well, it's actually been the focus of my research since um, I was a graduate student. My dissertation was originally called Conflict and Collusion. Um, and I was really interested in the conditions under which people cooperate with each other, comply with government policies or don't. What causes the kinds of behaviors that are absolutely critical to understanding a good society? And that led me to think about those issues in a whole variety of settings. So I have thought about, I started by thinking about compliance uh, and what I called quasi-voluntary compliance, which was really where people have to comply, like paying taxes, but where a more effective state is one in which state in multiple senses is one in which people prefer to comply because they think it's the right thing to do. They think that they're getting what they should from the government and then they're willing to um, give some of their cooperation, even, even in extractive terms in return. I went on to think about conditions under which people are asked to comply where they're really making um, very costly sacrifices and where they're volunteering. So it's not coerced as the backdrop to it, but volunteering. And that, look, that led me to look at military service and the conditions under which people are willing to agree, um, volunteer and sign up uh, to engage in military service in, a variety, in six democracies over 200 years was what the investigation was about. And also the conditions under which they weren't willing to volunteer why the Francophones in Quebec were so different from the Anglophones in Canada during, during both World War I and World War II, 
why we saw a rise and then a decline and then a rise again in conscientious objection. Um, so those kinds of issues were very deep in my psyche. And that led me ultimately to a big project that the Russell Sage Foundation supported. I was one of the leads with uh, a social a sociologist who's a social psychologist, Karen Cook, and a philosopher now deceased, Russell, Russell Harden, in thinking about uh, cooperation and trust and the conditions under which those occur and what they actually do for our society. And that was multiple disciplines involved, multiple uh, issues. So that's really the background to the work that I've been doing. So I have about 10,000 questions. First, what was the difference between French and English people in Canada in terms of, <laughs> I have no idea, <laughs> like what happened? Well, it's a very interesting story and one that's actually generalizable to many, many other societies. Okay. So the Francophones, um, let's say the, the people from Quebec, uh, Quebec and Ontario are easy to uh, compare. Um, the Francophones in Quebec, which is the dominant group in Quebec, felt like the government of Canada had not delivered on the promises that it had made when Confederation occurred in the 19th century. And one of those, the, the promises included that all schools would be dual language, that uh, the Francophones would have equal citizenship rights and equal security in a variety of ways of the Anglophones. And they felt that they had not received that. There was also something in the Articles of Confederation that said that Canada should not go to war unless it was actually attacked. It could not ask for people to engage in military service. And even though the, the Anglophones in Ontario said Britain's under attack, so therefore we are, um, the Francophones differed with that. The Quebec yeah. said, wait a minute, Britain's Britain. And they said, well, the French are under attack, said the Anglophones. And the Quebecois <laughs> said, well, the French left us on the ice floes in the 18th century and then changed their religion and had a revolution. We, you know, is Canada under attack? <laughs> And so you saw, you know, a refusal to volunteer for military service. You saw the, the priests in the pulpits on Sunday saying, don't do this. You saw the ministers in the pulpit in Ontario saying, we've got to go to war. I mean, there was just a whole different social script being acted out in the two provinces. And you can think of many countries in the world and many populations where the ethnic groups or uh, the, the, the South and the North yeah. Um, in the U.S. have very different views about how the federal government has treated them. Yes, exactly. So, oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about. Uh, can you describe a little bit how the state of the art has changed over the course of your career in terms of a, a sort of our perspective on both the value and sources of trust and cooperation in human societies? And add in, and its relation to economics. Yeah. Right. I realize you know, that's a hard question, but... It, it, it is a hard question, but it's, it's not as difficult as you think. So okay. um, one of the things we did with the, the big trust project that I helped to run was we did have people, as I said, from multiple disciplines, including a lot of economists. And for economists, um, with a couple of exceptions, I can think of Ken Arrow as one of the important exceptions, 
Um, trust plays very little role right. in what goes on. It's contractual, it's transactional, it's our interest being mutually served so that the role of trust in cooperation is relatively small. That's right. If you assume homo economicus, you don't need trust. Exactly. Right. And, it but just, you do, trust you do. disappears. That's right. Um, and it's all about people find, having, having interests that converge. And what we found, and what increasingly a number of economists found, is that something like trust is absolutely critical to many of the things that we see going on. I think a, a crucial person in this uh, was actually a sociologist, James Coleman, who's probably most famous for busing. Um, but he was a sociologist who worked very closely with Gary Becker. They ran a seminar together. Um, he had a very economist way of thinking about things. And he looked at a lot of different kinds of contractual relationships and saw that behind them were trust, that often what corporate elites did was shake hands on a deal. They had to, they had to basically have some confidence in each other. And now game theory helps us to understand that. And again, you can still use a kind of homo economicus model, and I'm going to challenge that in a minute, because if you're in a long-term relationship with somebody, you it's it's often makes more sense to cooperate than defect, even from a homo economicus perspective. Correct. The problem is that there are lots of conditions where those long-term arrangements don't work or where people are engaging in pro-social behavior and in trust, as it were, trusting behavior that can't be explained by anything that an economic model provides. And so um, one of the things that we were looking at in this project was what those conditions were. Where would an economic model work and where did it not work? And where it, it, it worked best in some senses were places where people got conned which was not what economists hoped. You know, those were the kinds of long-term relationships where at the end, somebody defected, right? Um, you got the little old lady to believe that you were a great guy and then she gave you all your money and then you defected. Right, right, right. So that's where the, the con and econ comes from. Right. <laughs> I think that's a way to think about it. Um, I like that. I might use that in the future if that's okay, Goldie. Feel free, my gift. <laughs> <laughs> So we were looking at all kinds of, or several of us were um, interested in conditions under which either you didn't need trust where cooperation occurred without trust because of either mutual relationships and deeply um, deep connections that existed where maybe trust was the bond, but it was so much deeper than that. It wasn't like you were engaging in a cognitive decision about whether to have confidence in this person or not. They were part of your family. They, you knew they, they had your interest at heart. It just wasn't, trust seemed like a very thin word to be describing what was going on because trust tends to have this context of the economist. And so we began to think about the kinds of conditions in which cooperation exists without that kind of narrow notion of trust. Um, where it really has to do with the fact that we feel connected in a whole variety of ways that lead us to have confidence in each other and to act together and often to engage in pro-social behavior that can't be accounted for by a homo economicus model. 
That was long-winded, but hopefully it got to some. No, of the no, no. That you right, right. And and I mean, just to fast forward from when you started your career to today, I think it's safe to say that the last decades of social science research have demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that Homo economicus is does not describe actual human behavior. That in Correct. fact, people are people evolved over millions of years to be other regarding, you know, and it, you know, intuitively moral and reciprocating and not particularly rational. That's right. <laughs> well, I think there are two things there that I want to emphasize, and I, I don't, I don't know if they're if we've proved that they're intuitively moral, Nick. But what we have, or that we have multiple moralities for sure. For sure. But but what we have shown is that one, people are very social. They're not individualistic. And they're very, they're looking for connections and they're looking for approval. They're looking for um, being good people in terms of others. So reciprocation is incredibly, and reciprocity is an incredibly important piece of the story. But we've also learned that, the, and, and we've certainly learned, Goldie, that they're not rational, um, you know, that they're persuaded by or affected by not just emotions, but by heuristics that can't be accounted for by any form of homo economicus uh, rationality, all kinds of things that affect our decision making. But that being said, there are instances where homo economicus in some sense works. I mean, there are conditions where clearly people want to feel that their interests are being served, right? They, they care, they certainly care about economics. They certainly care about their well-being. So in the book, In the Interest of Others, what we saw was, a, it's a very interesting case because we were looking at the Longshore Workers Unions on the West Coast of the U.S. and in Australia and other transport sector unions, including the East Coast longshore workers. And we started with unions because, John Alquist and I, because unions are a place where they're formed, at least in the Anglo-Saxon world, really to serve economistic ends, right? It's very much about ensuring that people get decent pay, decent benefits, uh, some job security, very narrowly economistic ends that fit with homo economicus. But we discovered that if you shift the governance arrangements among unions as the West Coast longshore workers and the Australians did, so that you re reward behavior and encourage people to learn about the world, to think about others who can never reciprocate, so reciprocity isn't even at issue, you can actually encourage uh, all kinds of costly behavior costly to the individual that goes against everything Homo economicus says, costly behavior that could lead to jailing, jail time, to loss of wages, even to harm, to body, bodily harm and, and death, to, to close the ports, to refuse to load goods, to engage in other actions on behalf of very distant others who could never reciprocate. We call that the creation of an expanded community of fate in which you see that your destiny is entwined with others and that are very far away. It's not just your family. So that um, is not at all consistent with homo economicus. Does it require trust? Yes, it requires trust and it certainly requires cooperation, but it requires trust in this broader sense 
that you feel this social connectedness with others and therefore feel you can cooperate with them to work together and to work with others who you'll never see to make the world a better place. Is that sort of group level trust kind of a, a behavioral shortcut for humans? That now, now we don't have to worry about, do I trust this individual? Do I trust this individual? Oh, I'm part of this group. I can trust the whole group. Yeah, but it requires, it is. I mean, that's, that's, that's very perceptive. It is a shortcut, but it's not an easy shortcut because right. it requires a bunch of governance arrangements for the organization or a, a bunch of norms and rules that are instantiated in the group that enable that to happen. It doesn't just happen. Um, it requires some, some capacity to organize people or to, to create the kind of communication that enables people to recognize others who share this kind of, um, if you will, intuition, desire, uh, proclivity. So it's difficult to, to create. Once created, how, how fragile is it? It's not necessarily fragile, but it requires work to sustain it. And I think that's an important, you know, when we were looking at the unions, we thought of them as um, not only a very good example of something that was created to be economistic, but also they're mini governments. And you can't really, I mean, we can think of all kinds of examples. I think of the environmental movement and Thunberg and what she's been able to do in bringing people together and to really create an expanded community of faith, but it is a very fragile thing in, in that kind of, it's a, it's a movement, it's a mobilization. It's not really an ongoing organization or uh, process. If you really want a government that's able to do that, that takes a lot of care and feeding and it, it can be sustained but you really have to be attentive that the, the, so the kinds of rules that we are primarily concerned with here are ones that provide, this will, in this day of COVID um, and the anti-vaxxers, this will sound yeah. almost impossible to achieve, but um, provide a kind of credible information and information, what makes that information credible is that there is a situation in which people can argue about it in a relatively civil way challenge it, get challenged back, so that there begins to be some consensus about what is true and not true. I can provide concrete examples of that from the unions, but, but, but let, me, let me go on with some of the other rules and come back to that if, if we need to. Um, and the other rule that I think is, is really, really critical here is a participatory democracy. So that decisions about engage engaging in costly actions in which everybody in principle is supposed to engage are done by a vote, but not just a vote in which there's been no deliberation or conversation and not just a request by the leadership to do this and then you have a plebiscite. It's, it's really a vote where you believe that, okay, if I lose this one, I still could win another one and we've discussed it and you go along with the outcome of it, and then you act in a particular way. So a kind of process of making information credible and a process of a real participatory democracy. And then the third piece is really holding the leadership accountable. A union like a government has to deliver to its citizens, to its members. So the, gover the government 
um, or the leadership in the union has to actually be able to deliver the goods. And if they can't, they have to be accountable for that. So there have to be relatively, not just a periodic election every four years that goodness knows, um, but that there is constant, there's an easy capacity to recall, there's an easy way to challenge the leadership, to vote them down on a whole variety of things. So it's, it's a complicated process that can lead to spectacular outcomes, but is both hard to create and hard to sustain, but not fragile. Okay, you're making me anxious about uh, the state of current affairs in the United States. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I'm always anxious. <laughs> so let's talk about the current state of affairs. Um, obviously, trust has broken down in the United States in a profound way. And, I, I, you know, there's this almost surreal thing playing out where people will literally die rather than believe the consensus scientific opinion. And, you know, if that's not a sign that trust is broken down, I don't, I don't know what could be. I mean, it just, it is astounding. Yeah. What do you think? I, I, I mean, Facebook, of course, is a plague on the world, but I don't think it's all Facebook's fault. Like what, what's contributing to that? And what well, let me just be- remind yeah. you that McCarthyism existed in this country and there was mm-hmm. no Facebook then. Right, exactly. We have been plagued by conspiracy theories. And I mean, the history of the United States, history of many countries, uh, we've, there have always been groups that sometimes reach majority (laughs) or close to majority who have believed in the oddest things from any scientific premise or reality check. Yeah. So we really have to understand this at a deeper level than social media, which contributes for sure and might augment and amplify, but is hardly the deepest source of the problem. It's 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 an actor in it, but it's a it's in a better, but not the cause. Correct. And so, you know, this gets back to a, a little bit of what we were talking about before about how we have learned how people are not rational, um, that they form beliefs that are not based on anything that we, you, the three of us talking here might consider evidence, but for them, it is evidence. And for them, it is a hard, hard, a very strongly held belief. Um, So the real issue, I think, confronting, certainly confronting social science, but even more importantly, confronting the world is to understand not just the sources of those beliefs about which we have some information, But the much harder and much more intractable problem of how to change those beliefs. I was, I'm part of a group called the, um, the acronym is SEAN, and it was created by the National Academy of Sciences and the National Science Foundation, and it's Societal Experts Action Network. And it's really how to bring the social sciences into the discussion of COVID issues, a lot of the issues you were just raising you know, the anti-maskers, the anti-vaxxers, how to create equity in the distribution of resources for combating the disease, et cetera. The kinds of questions that social sciences actually have something to say about. And I'm telling this story because the thing I was most struck with at the beginning of our discussions 
at Sean was how the public health people had such a top-down view of messaging. They weren't understanding, they sort of understand that African-Americans might resist um, vaccines because of their distrust based on how they've been the subjects of experiments, problematic experiments, but they didn't really recognize the diversity of beliefs that were out there. And so they had this silly messaging from my perspective um, in terms of how to reach publics. Now, if we start the vaccine with our scientific community not understanding that there is a diverse public out there that is developing these really weird views that have to be confronted in multiply different ways, we're not gonna overcome that problem of distrust or that problem of distorted beliefs. So I think it's, a, it's, it's an incredibly difficult problem as we're seeing. Um, and people seem to get hardened in their views. And we've seen politicians supporting that. So how do we change that? That's, that's really the big question. And I do think it comes back to one of the things that we, that John Alquist and I learned in writing in the interest of others, that we have to create whole new mechanisms that really we have only begun to imagine in terms of communicating what's going on, hearing where people are coming from about those issues, why they think that this vaccine or this mask is a problem, understanding that there are competing values here, that some people seem to think that this defines liberty and that's a greater value to them than the health of others. And then just trying to start from there, I'm, I'm very, there've been a couple of wonderful books written in the last couple of years, um, not so much about the vaccine, but about why um, the Tea Party arose or Trumpism arose that are really ethnographic studies in communities that bought into these views where they clearly were benefiting from government or could have benefited from government and refused to. And beginning to understand and unpack where people are actually coming from is a critical piece of this story. There's not gonna be a one size fits all solution in the sense of one story will fit for everybody, but a process that really allows people to present how they feel and why they feel that way and feel understood by others. And then to create a, a way in which challenge can go on is a really crucial part of this. Some of my colleagues at Stanford, um, Jim Fishkin and others have been engaging in deliberative democracy processes that have, um, or deliberative um, discussion processes, sorry, that have really allowed Republicans of the most extreme sort and Democrats of the most extreme sort to come together and begin to talk to each other. And I think we need to do more of that and find new ways to do that. You know, it strikes me though that this anti-vax, anti-mask sentiment isn't entirely organic. It seems to be intentionally provoked by the Republican leadership. We have a two-party system right now in which one party seems to be actively trying to destroy trust in government in, in, in their mission to dismantle democracy. You know, that certainly is one of the side benefits to Republicans in Texas of what they just did with their new uh, abortion law that encourages oh, people to... Uh, uh, be vigilantes and rewards them for trying to rat out their neighbors. 
how, how do you have a high trust society when when your neighbor's going through your garbage can looking for evidence that you might have had an abortion? I know it's just terrible. And but then rewarding them $10,000 for writing right. that evidence. Just awful. No, I, it, you know, as as you know, as well as I do, and Nick's writing about this yeah. right now, is that this has been going on for a long time. And this is the hopefully the culmination of it. And we'll maybe even see a turning point. That would be the optimistic view. Yeah. But there has been a concerted effort for many, many years, which we are seeing pay off now with the Republicans in control of legislatures, um, even more than Congress, and leading to a Supreme Court that is, you know, more conservative than any that we've experienced in our lifetime, for sure. So, yes, it's a very disturbing anti-government, destroying confidence in the capacity of government to deliver or reasons to even believe that government should be delivering things. So even undermining the demand for a government to be what a government should be. It's very disturbing. No question about that. And there's no question that the Republican Party and others are contributing to that. Um, I wouldn't leave out some of the foreign <laughs> actors right. in all of this who are also trying to create havoc and trouble within the United States. You know, with our remaining time, can you be a little bit more prescriptive? We often ask the benevolent dictator question, you know, if, if you were in charge and wanted to increase trust in the United States, what would you do? What are we doing wrong and what would you do differently? Well, I think there are two levels to answer that question. One is actually more or less being met by President Biden, um, somewhat to my surprise, uh, but to, to my, everyone's surprise, to my pleasure. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really is stepping up to the plate and showing that government can and will act to help people and that it can and will deliver. I mean, we have to uh, regain confidence in government, even those of us who want to believe in government need to regain confidence in yeah. government because it's been so undermined. Now, hopefully his window to do that and will be expanded and extended, but you know, given he's doing the right things, that administration yeah. is doing the right things to try to re-engage trust in um, the government. But it also has to happen at the local level. And that's where we have fallen down as much as we have at the national level. So my prescription at the local level would, would be to um, do what some organizations have done, including to some extent Civic Ventures, which is to really focus on a number of local governments and local policies and local programs to tr try to reinstitute trust at the local level so that we can elect city council people, state legislators who actually, you know, make people believe that democracy can work, that mobilization will matter. You know, I'm hopeful. I, I always like to see the brighter side of things, that things as terrible as what's going on in Texas right now may get people onto the streets and yeah. even more importantly, into the voting booths um, to try to transform the legislatures of their, their states and their cities. I mean, we're going to see some really disastrous things happen in some of these states that are acting 
in these bizarre, from our perspective, ways yeah. and very problematic ways. They're going to really have trouble building up the kind of economic relationships that are built on cooperation and on purpose that is increasingly the norm in corporations and in firms and in businesses. If neighbors can't trust neighbors, they're not going to be able to engage in the kinds of practices that lead to a healthy society, either economically or in terms of civics. Yeah. You know, I haven't seen it, but but I bet you if you looked at a map, uh, you could correlate vaccination rates with uh, uh, economic performance. No, you, I have seen those maps, Goldie, <laughs> yeah. you can, but it's it, they're correlations. So yes. it's, you know, it's partially that people who have been more economically, who are in low performing economic areas are also anti-vaxxer, as opposed to that the anti-vaxxing is causing low economic performance. Yeah. But, but, right. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that you don't get, you don't get a high functioning economy without without a high functioning government and that requires trusting government. And if you don't have trust in government that, you know, I think you see that correlation with the, with the low vaccination rates. You know, one of the things that's making, tr and you know this, cause you, you both have written about this and talked about this, but part of what makes trust unravel is by undermining government mm -hmm. and undermining or undermining the medical facilities by, you know, the anti-masking and the anti-vaxxing is just putting this huge load so they can't deliver as well, that yeah. under, further undermines confidence in government. So the Republican strategy is working. So we have to put resources into the places. This is, this is a strong prescription. We actually can't just say they'll fall apart, good on them. We, if we right. wanna change this, we have to put resources there that really build up the government capacity so that people have confidence in government once again. Yeah. And that is the Biden strategy. Yeah, which I think is the right strategy. Are, are there any other prescriptions we've missed? Well, I do think that we have to, I mean, I guess a prescription, which is not, there's just gotta be a lot of experiment. I mean, we have to leave the door open. I mean, some of the experiments that are going on right now, like the Texas ones, we don't want. But there got to be a lot of different ways. I mean, I think we're in a very important um, inflection point in this country. I think we all do, you know, where the democracy, could, what we think of as democracy could really fall apart. What we think of as a, 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 an economy that provides reasonable equity, equality and well-being could really is falling apart, could fall apart farther. Um, so that and we don't have a clear solution. So I think that we need to have lots of different experiments going on. And this is where having a federal system could be to our advantage if it's used properly. So, you know, I think it's worth looking at different ways to, to have voting systems, to look at different ways to create small businesses and support for that kind of uh, enterprise. And we're beginning to see some of that, but we've got to give it more attention and we've got to really play those things up. Seattle's a great example of this where um, what you did with the, the $15 minimum wage is a fantastic experiment that's now you know, affecting many, many other places, but it started locally, um, not just in Seattle, but in a, in a very few places and then spreads. 
So we need more of those kinds of experiments and then we need to amplify them, the ones that work. Nick, you, you wanna ask the final question? Yeah, uh, th the final question is always, why do you do this work? <laughs> I was born to do this work. I mean, we were, I, I've been marching for civil rights since I was five years old. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> you know, my mother had my sister and me dress up in identical really to our embarrassment outfits um, to show that middle-class white people, you know, were there at the front lines with African-Americans. Um, it's always been part, it's part of my DNA to think that we can make this world a better place and that we have to fight and look for solutions. And so as I thought about my own, as I grew up and thought about um, my own capacities um, it became very apparent that where I could really make a difference was, you know, occasionally on the front lines, but I was not going to be Rosa Luxemburg. I had a better chance at being Francis Perkins um, and really looking at the world the way it is and trying to understand it and to come up with policies, programs, ideas, the social science that would feed the kinds of programs and policies and practices that need to happen. I love it. That's such a great answer. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for coming. We did not get to talk about your work on a moral political economy, but I hope you will come back and talk about that next time. I would love to. I would love okay. to. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. You know, one of the things I take away from our conversation with Margaret about trust in human societies is that it's not that easy, right. <laughs> sadly, you know, like it actually takes a lot of work and energy and goodwill and capable institutional arrangements to generate that trust and effort and intent. That's right. And, you know, I get, I, you know, like as she was talking, I, I, I really feel strongly and I know, I mean, we set up this goddamn podcast for this reason, which is that, you know, at the heart, I believe, of the mistrust that we have in our society has been the way in which neoliberal economic policy basically, you know, because those policies enriched the few in this really obvious way and eroded the economic, you know, so both the economic and social security of most people that had a huge impact on how people right. feel about government that, you know, it's just objectively true that for most citizens, they just got screwed over the last 40 years. And it's pretty hard to feel good about a government, by the way, run by politicians from both parties uh, who did that. I just, you know, that, that, that's the, hard truth. It was a fascinating conversation with Margaret, and uh, I can't wait to have her back to talk about her new book. Uh, but in the meantime, right. for you Pitchfork Economics listeners, don't forget to register for EconCon. You'll love it. Register for EconCon. There's a link in our show notes, and we hope to see you all there. In the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, uh, we're going to do a really fun thing, which is to talk to uh, restaurant owner Mark Buecher uh, from Washington, D.C. about 
the wage crisis we face uh, as opposed to the staffing crisis so many people think we have. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.